Would you please rise, uh, if you are able, as we hear what God has to say to us in his word. I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible, reading Galatians 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders, so that I might not be running or have run a race in vain. But not even Titus was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. This issue arose because of false brothers smuggled in who came in secretly to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now from those recognized as important, what they really were makes no difference to me, God does not show favoritism, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. Thank you. Please be seated. Thank you, Mary Lynn, uh, for reading scripture this morning. And if you have your Bibles, you're here in Galatians chapter 2. You can also put a bookmark or finger over in Acts 15. Uh, We'll be there in just a few moments. Uh, Acts chapter number 15. And we are here as well in Galatians. We'll start here in Galatians and we'll travel over there in just a few moments. Acts 15 and and Galatians uh, chapter 2. You've probably seen uh, some of these before. Uh, Maybe it's on the back of a car, uh, a sticker. uh, It's it's a sticker that's designed to kind of unite people together. Uh, I've seen them on bags. I've seen them in other places. Uh, The coexist stickers. You ever seen those before? Coexist. It's the idea of uh, you know, existing together. And it was originally designed by a Polish graphic designer named Piotr, yeah, I'm not even going to try to say his name in Polish, uh, Peter, I guess. Uh, he did it as an entry into an art, <clears throat> excuse me, an art competition in 2001, and it very quickly became a hit. Uh, they started showing up <clears throat> here in the early 2000s, uh, maybe as a, as a response to a military involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, originally, there were only three religions on the image. Uh, there was The C was replaced with a Muslim crescent. The X was replaced with the Star of David. And the T was replaced with uh, the cross. 
Uh, modern versions have done a more of that where they replace the O with a peace symbol, uh, the E with a Hindu symbol, the I has a pentagram on the top of it, and the S is replaced with a yin-yang symbol. And the idea behind the picture, I guess the point of it or the message of it, was to show uh, the importance of all different types of religions and how they should unite together. Uh, coincidentally, most of the followers of those religions do not advocate for those stickers. Most of the studies have shown that the people who actually display those stickers are usually not associated with any of those. Uh, something that often happens whenever people are talking about God and the way to him is that Christianity kind of gets pushed in with all these other religions. Uh, people outside of it just see it as this is just another way to get to heaven. Kind of like last, the other week when I talked about the blind guys trying to determine what an elephant was. Uh, but as a Christian, I would argue that, that Christianity is not just another religion. It's not just a way to God. It is the way to God. The only way. And the way to God is not something that I do, but it's something that God already did. So I say my Christianity is not a religion because a religion is designed to, hey, how do we appease our, a supreme being? And I say my Christianity is not, not a religion, it's a relationship. It's an understanding of who I am and who God is and a submission and a complete trust in what Christ did for me. And I used to be extremely bothered by those bumper stickers, and I would get mad at someone uh, that would think of all those different groups being the same. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that to the world, we're just like all the other people. So how do we set ourselves apart from other religions? How do we go about showing that our way is the right way or the only way? And what do we do when people start trying to add things to our understanding of what the gospel is. The message uh, entitled this morning, Testing the Gospel, because Paul certainly faced what some, of, uh, some of that when he was on his missionary journeys. And in today's passage, we see that he's writing to the Galatians about one of the problems that he faced from false teachers that had actually slipped in. You saw where it said slipped in and started to spy on what was going on. So let's pray as we begin uh, this passage together. God, today your word is truth, and every word from beginning to end has been inspired by you, has given us, uh, Lord, instructions on how to live and what to believe. God, I pray that you would just clear our minds today, keep us from distractions, keep us from uh, temptations. Lord, help us to see the truth of the matter, and that is your way is the only way. And Lord, as we live in the gospel, I pray that it would produce things within our lives. It is in your precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's, let's gather ourselves back to what Paul is doing here uh, in Galatians. If you remember back in chapter 1, he's, he's started out uh, introducing himself and starting his letter, and he really starts off defending his apostleship, uh, that he is an apostle. Uh, not because he is, he, he's trying to be proud or have a big ego, like, hey, I'm an apostle, listen to me. He's doing it because 
Ultimately, the gospel here is at stake. He's doing it because false teachers had started slipping in and started preaching this different gospel. And, 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 and he, Paul's trying to defend himself. He says that, hey, a different gospel, but we saw in chapter 1, is not really a gospel at all. Because a false gospel is a false root, if you will, that's going to produce a false fruit. A Christian's life is one that's rooted in the gospel, and we live out of that. We, it produces this sort of fruit coming out of our lives. And so Paul's going to show us today that by looking at his life, what his gospel is. And what I want you to do is to think about it. Each one of us has a gospel. And I'm not saying there's different gospels. I'm saying each one of us has in our heart, has what we believe to be the gospel. And you're either believing what the Bible says, or you're believing something entirely different. And as Paul said last week, anything added to the gospel of Jesus destroys what the gospel is. So I want to start with this, and that's three questions to kind of discern whether our gospel is the true gospel. And then secondly, the second part of this is when you have the root of the gospel and you understand what it is, then what is the fruit that it produces? Because it always produces something. So we're going to look at three questions and then four fruits, or I think I called it impulses, of the gospel. So Paul's going to work through this passage, and we just read it, we just read it together, uh, and it's kind of like this autobiographical story about what happens uh, so that other, uh, the, the Galatian readers would believe, and so that you and I would believe what the true gospel is, and not the false gospels that are out there. So three questions to ask. First of all, is the gospel consistent with the word of God? Is the gospel consistent with the word of God? Verse 1, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul says, hey, I've been preaching this message for 14 years, and it's the one that I received from Jesus Christ, and we talked about that last week. So now it says he returns to Jerusalem, and as we read, he takes Barnabas with him, and then this young guy, Titus. Now, this is important because Titus is a Greek. It even says it there in the passage. He's this Greek young man, probably 15 to 25 years old. Uh, He's a convert of Paul's. And we read that he is uncircumcised. And this is going to come into play as we go through this. So Paul travels to Jerusalem, and while he was there, he said, Hey, I want to verify that the gospel I'm preaching is the same as what the apostles are preaching. Now Paul, if if we saw this last week, Paul received this from the Lord. And in the last chapter, he says, hey, I didn't consult with the apostles on this. I just actually started preaching it. And it's been 14 years. And I traveled to Jerusalem because I want to make sure that what I'm saying lines up with the teaching of the apostles. Not that because he doubts his own saying, but he wants to make sure, hey, I received this from the Lord. Did you receive this from the Lord? Is this the same message? 
So now, the journey actually happens over in Acts 15. So you can uh, switch over to Acts 15. I want to show you uh, a couple of things about the story of how he gets there and what happens when he's there. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And now you keep reading in verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep them, in order to keep the law of Moses. So here's the story. Paul and Barnabas are, they just kind of finished up their missionary journey from in the Galatian region, and, and now they realize there's some teachers coming out of Judea who are, who are proclaiming the message, hey, you have to be circumcised in order for you to truly be saved. And Paul and Barnabas are like, they, they, they have an argument with them, the Bible says a dissension and a debate. And they decide, you know what, we are going to go and make sure that this is not the truth of what's coming out of Jerusalem. Because circumcision doesn't save you. So they travel up to Jerusalem and they meet with the apostles. And I love what it said in verse 3, how they're going through on the way and they're describing in detail how the Gentiles are getting saved and all the brothers in those areas are like, this is amazing, awesome. It's not just the Jews. The Gentiles are getting saved too. And they get to the, the Jerusalem and the, the church welcomes them and the apostles welcome them. Now, you're in Acts 15. Look at verse 6. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after that, there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring back to Acts 10 where he saw the vision and he met with Cornelius. Verse uh, 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. That'll come back to play in just a moment. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter says, why are you trying to get them to go underneath this law of circumcision, if you will? And why are you trying to put them back under slavery? Because he says in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 11, that they're saved the same way we are through the grace of of the Lord Jesus. Verse 12, and the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related signs and wonders that God had done with them among the Gentiles. And when they had finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And now skip down to verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of Gentiles who turn to God. 
But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. And then you can keep reading in 22 and following. They actually write a letter to those churches in Galatia uh, saying, hey, we, we understand there's this false teaching. It's not. It's really through the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and that's the only thing. And, and then he says, and we want you to make sure you turn away from idols. We want you to turn away from sexual immorality. Uh, we don't want you to uh, eat food that has blood and stuff like that. Uh, so what in the world? What just happened? Paul goes to Jerusalem and he gets confirmation that the apostles and he are preaching the same message. Is your gospel consistent with what the word of God teaches? Now, back in Galatians chapter 2, notice he says that I wanted to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. This doesn't mean that Paul doubts his message. He already said, hey, my message is from Christ. And if anyone preaches a different message from that, it's a false one. You could actually translate this verse this way. That Paul says, I laid before them, the apostles, the gospel which I preached to the Gentiles, that they might examine and settle for themselves the question whether I'm not possibly running or had run in vain. He goes, it's not me. I'm not trying to make sure my message is true. I'm trying to make sure that they know that my message is true. So now look down to verse 6. He says, those who seem to be influential, the end of the verse those who seem to be influential added nothing to me. This is not arrogance. Well, I went to find out and they didn't add nothing to me. Like they didn't help me at all. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is great. They didn't add anything to me because, listen, I've been out there preaching the gospel. If 14 years later I go back and I ask the apostles what their gospel message is, and it says they added nothing to my message, which means it's the same message. It's just one more proof that, that Paul said, hey, this is the message I received from Jesus Christ, and it's the same message that the apostles are teaching. In verse 9, we see the, the same thing. And they extended the right hand of fellowship, showing their agreement. And so now, what about us today? Do you believe the gospel as revealed in the scriptures? Or do you think there's another way? Do you think that people here who are, who are really good will make it into heaven? People who are genuinely sincere about their way will make it into heaven. See, the Bible answer to that is no. They will not make it into heaven. What gets you into heaven is not good works. It's not being sincere. It's not trying to stack up all of these things so that you can stand before God and say, look at what I have done. The only way to heaven is salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Is your gospel consistent with the word of God? Secondly, is the cross sufficient for salvation? Is the cross sufficient? Look at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, 
though he was Greek. Now, picture this scene, all right? Paul is out in Galatia, and he's preaching the gospel message about salvation being grace through faith, not works, you know, the whole story. And now, now he goes to Jerusalem, and he takes the message that he's preaching, and he moves it from just being words to actually being flesh and blood. Like, he, 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 instead of just going up and saying, hey, guys, I just want to, you know, make sure my message, da, 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 da. No, no, no. He actually takes Titus, a Greek young man who's not circumcised, and brings him to Jerusalem. And instead of just checking his word, he brings this actual person in and basically is saying, hey, listen, is he in or out? Is the gospel of grace enough for him? Or does he have to do something? Does he have to, quite literally, change his physical appearance? So put yourself in Titus's shoes. And by the way, in some way, all of us are in his shoes. Because I would think that most of us in here are not Jewish. And if we're not Jewish, that means we're Gentiles. And if we're Gentiles, then in a way, Titus here kind of represents all of us. And if Paul loses this argument, and and they determine Titus to not be part of the people of God, then you and I are not part of the people of God. So will Titus be compelled to be circumcised? Or is the cross enough for him? And I say, the cross is enough. God doesn't make a halfway covenant And come part of the way down to us and says, okay, I'm at this point. Now, you have to work your way up to me. Did Jesus come all the way down to the cross? Yes. And he did it for anybody. Is God looking at us and saying, well, you're Jewish, but you're not. Oh, you're black, but you're not. Oh, you're rich, but you're not. Oh, you're a man, but you're not. Does the gospel have anything to do with our ethnicity, our our gender, our class? No. And I would dare say as well that God doesn't weigh your sins on a scale and then charge you by the pound. So Paul brings Titus along to show, hey, this is someone that, that believes my message and I didn't tell them he had to be circumcised. I just told him to to accept by grace, accept by faith the grace that God has given. Someone who is really leaning on the cross. This is why we sing the songs, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so this morning, does your gospel, what you're believing in, does it lean wholly on the cross of Christ? Is it sufficient for you? What does your gospel say? But you also have to do something else. Yeah, but no, no, no. Is it enough? The third question is, does your gospel give you freedom in Christ? Does your gospel give you freedom in Christ? Look at verse 4. Yet because... 
a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our friend. Don't you love the wording that Paul uses here? These, these false teachers are secretly brought in. It's kind of like, ooh, they slip in. They're spying out. Kind of sounds like the Pharisees, doesn't it? I mean, think of the stories of Jesus when he was on earth and how the Pharisees were always there watching. They, these false teachers come in. They're spying. They're spying what? The freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. So that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It says the false teachers slipped in. They're trying to hear what's going on. And then it says they want to drag them back into slavery. What in the world is he talking about? I would say it this way. They want to add a little law to their salvation. See, we have to do something to reach up to God. There are Christians who simply don't trust other Christians with freedom. Oh, listen, let, let me help you. Let, let, me, let me just add a little law to your salvation. Listen, but, but pastor, shouldn't there be just a little bit of burden? Shouldn't there be just this little bit of what we have to do? The freedom. Yeah, but, but then we're saved and we've got to do, got to do, got to do, got to do. Does that make you more saved? Or is your salvation free? And if it's free... Whoa, 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 pastor, if, if you preach free grace, then, then people are going to sin more because they're going to take advantage of that grace. So, so we just kind of give them a little law so they will stay, you know, the right way. And I say this, will people take advantage of the grace of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. But if, listen, if we want to understand the radical free grace of God, then that might be the result. Now, Paul doesn't, he's going to deal with this. When we get to uh, Galatians chapter 5, he's, he's going he's to uh, describe how we live in the grace of God. As a matter of fact, he also deals with it in other books. Uh, in, in Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about it. He says, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Basically saying, hey, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. That when sin comes in, grace overcomes that sin. And so that means that no matter how big your sin is, grace is going to be greater than that sin. Grace is always greater than the sin. Okay. Does that mean then that we sin? Because, man, if I, if I sin, that means God's grace shows more. And if I sin more, that means His grace shows more. And I just keep sinning more. And just to show how awesome His grace is. Do you know Paul has this exact same thought after writing that? <clears throat> In chapter 6, the very next chapter, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may superabound? So, so God forgives sinners and, and grace superabounds in the presence of abounding sin. So I'm going to abound more in sin so that God's grace continues to come on top of it. That's what, that's, that's what we're supposed to do, right? 
Look at the next verse. By no means. By no means. Like, like unfortunately, our English translation, by no means. It just doesn't have a, a, a heavy burden, heavy connotation to it. Like, do you understand that the phrase by no means, in other translations, it might be God forbid it. Or let it never be so. Uh, like, like Paul is using the most harshest way he can say it without getting in trouble with what he says. He's, you know, mm, no. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too walk in newness of life. The free grace of God. Listen. It doesn't give you the... It doesn't say, hey, here's freedom to just sin like you want to. Here's, here's freedom to just live the way you want to. No. Listen, you know what grace does? Grace kills you. Grace will take you and kill you and then raise you to newness of life. And no one who ever says, who has genuinely received the grace of God, says, you know, now I can live how I want. No, the grace of God compels you, instructs you, and trains you, and transforms you. The false teachers were trying to drag them back into the law, into slavery. So I asked this morning, does your gospel give you freedom in Christ? And I think in a lot of us, perhaps all of us, something inside of us kind of wants to slip back into slavery a little bit. We feel like that, that we have to perform for God in order for him to continue to love me. And I would say this, obedience to the law is never the way you're justified before God. Obedience to the law is not salvation. Obedience is fruit, not the root. The fruit that's produced in our lives because of the root of the gospel in my life. And if you're apart from Jesus, then you're a slave to sin. The only thing that makes you righteous before God is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that sets you free. And I would say, in whom the Son sets free is free. You don't keep going back, as Peter said, and submitting to that yoke of slavery. You can get off the performance treadmill. I say, if the reason you read your Bible and the reason you go to church and the reason you tithe is so that God will owe you because you've done these things, then you're slipping back to slavery. You're becoming religious. See, obedience is fruit, not the root. The root is the gospel of grace. Now, as I said a moment ago, there's three questions and four impulses or four fruits. Because roots always produce fruit. The same is true with the gospel. It produces something within us. Your salvation and the way that you know you're saved is not... Let me be careful here. 
The way that you know you're saved is not simply because you prayed the sinner's prayer or walked an aisle. I'm not discrediting those things, and you may have received Christ at that point, but that is not the one thing you look back on. If you're in Christ, you're rooted in the gospel, and it's your life every day now. Someone told me once, I don't like singing songs of worship. I, I, don't, I, I don't like, I, just, I worship in other ways. I responded, if you really thought about what Christ did for you and your faith in him and what he promises you and how much he genuinely loves you, how can you not sing? How can you not lift your voice in praise and song to the one who deserves it? See, our salvation needs to be alive. It needs to be right now. It's not just something we did one time. It's every single day. Paul says in Philippians 2 that he says, in my absence, I want you to do this, but I want you to work out your salvation. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we've talked about that when we study the book of Philippians, that that is this idea of sanctification, that I continually work out my salvation and he continually works in the, underneath so that you ought to be able to say, you know, the gospel is being worked out in my life. There are things that I am starting to see in my life. Why? Because they're evidence that I'm a new creature. They're evidence that I'm saved. Now listen, it's the fruit. It's not the root. So let me just finish this morning by showing you four fruits, four impulses that are demonstrated here within Paul's life. Four impulses. First of all, Number one, the impulse of discipleship. The impulse of discipleship. And what I mean by this is, 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 is being the person that says, I want to invest in other people. I want people to know what I know. And I want to bring people with me. I want to help immature Christians become mature Christians. And Paul does exactly that. You read the book of Acts. You read Paul's letters. And you find name after name after name after name of people that some of them we have no idea other than their name. Maybe they're mentioned once. Maybe they're more, of a, they're more part of Paul's life. Maybe they're people. But they're people that Paul invested in. And there's quite a few young people. Like Titus. Or Timothy. Or Epaphrodite or Onesimus. These, these names just show up in his letters. Why? Because Paul was showing, hey, I'm invested in them. I'm invested in, in training them and teaching them because they're the next generation. Paul was constantly living for the future. He's constantly working with younger people to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And I would say this should be the impulse for every single believer. Are you fostering relationships to allow you to disciple other people? And it's not just your own children. Listen, listen. This is why we have ministries at our church. This is why outside of the morning message on Sunday morning, this is why we facilitate other times together together. This is why we encourage you, hey, be a part of a small group. What better way to disciple and be discipled than in a more intimate setting where the conversation and the prayer can be very specific? This is why we have Sunday school on Sunday morning. 
To be able to meet together weekly, intergenerational, it doesn't matter. We can study the word together. We can learn together. Yeah, but pastor, small groups are weird and uncomfortable. Listen, I get it. The first one I was part of was a freak show. It's still, never mind. You get in that group and you get surrounded by gospel-centered people. What's going to happen is God's going to bring in your life a Paul. And he's going to bring in your life a Titus. And he wants you to invest. God didn't save you so that you could go into your cloistered private Christianity. He saved you so that you would go invest in others. Paul brings Titus and Barnabas, and there's just this continualization that Paul is discipling other people. That's an impulse. Number two, the impulse of impartiality. The impulse of impartiality. Look at verse six again. So Paul's writing, he's he's there in Jerusalem. The false teachers have come in. And now he says in verse 6, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Now, that kind of sounds a little arrogant. Whoa, Paul. Those guys that, well, they seem to be influential, and I don't really care about them because, you know, God doesn't really care. No, 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 no. That phrase, seem to be influential, seemed means appear to other people to be influential. He's talking about the apostles. He's talking about those that appeared influential to everyone else. Now, for Paul to say what they were makes no difference to me, doesn't show arrogance. It shows impartiality. Gospel-induced impartiality is something that every single Christian ought to have. And Paul looks at all of life, and he learns over 14 years that he talks about to view everything in lens of the gospel. And so now he goes to these important people, and he sees them through the lens of the gospel. And he says, hey, God doesn't choose them because they're important. God doesn't look on Paul because he's Jewish, or he doesn't look on this man, or he looks on that, or God looks at men more than he does women. No, no, that's not how this works. Which is why Peter said back in Acts that, uh, uh, let me go back to it, that by my mouth the, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them, giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. God doesn't go to this person because he's smart and everyone else is dumb. He says, God is impartial. See, the reason God is impartial is because he set his affections on me simply because he loved me. Not because I've done good things. Not because I've, I'm, I'm, I'm living here in America that he, 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 blessed, he, he, he loves me more. Paul says in Romans 7, there's nothing good that dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Paul said, nothing good dwells in me. That when God loves, it's not because of what Paul did. And see, listen, as a Christian, when we understand that, it frees you from the fear of man. 
You know why? Because now you don't need man's approval. Look back to chapter 1, verse 10. Am I seeking the approval of man? No. If I'm trying to please man, I'm not a servant of Christ. Listen, Gages Lake Bible Church, you can like me or you cannot. I'm not saying don't like me, <laughs> but you might not. And this is something that, that I struggle with. Okay. You, you don't have to like me. I know that God does. That God set his affection on me. Not because of what I've done, but just because he loves me. I can, I can secure myself in that. I don't, I don't have to have you post on Facebook about my sermons. <laughs> I don't have to get in the van with my wife and say, well, how was that? Was that good? You like that? You didn't like that. That was a horrible sermon. I should not have preached that sermon. I, not that I've had that conversation <laughs> recently. Anyway, <laughs> you can be impartial. You, you, you no longer have the fear of man. Why? Because God's not looking for the approval of man. Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The impulse of impartiality. Do you know what partiality is? Partiality is, I will like you, or I will seek after you, or I will listen to you if you can benefit me in some way. Maybe financially, or spiritually, or socially. My wife and I knew a couple once who, who always befriended families with teenagers. Like, they would just befriend them very quickly. And I'm like, oh, look, they have a heart for youth. And then we realized they befriended them because they themselves had little children. And so they would often ask their teenagers to watch their little children. So they could, and they would befriend. Now this other couple would come in with no children. Oh, they didn't really befriend them. <laughs> Whoa, wait. Can you benefit me? That's partiality. You're like me. Or we share the same values. Or we have the same political stance. Or you have the same color skin as I do. So we can be friends. No, the Bible says that God shows no partiality. That he doesn't look at your class or your skin color or your social standing. That God sets his love upon you other, for no other reason other than the fact that he loves you. And Paul says, listen, we can be impartial as well. And the gospel produces this. So that now, as I live in 2020, in this, in this, this society, this, this racial struggling society that's happening in America, and I can say, hey, I can love people who are different than me. I can love. Why? Because I am loved. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being free from the tyranny of trying to please everybody? Trying to please the important ones. Listen, the greatest being in the universe set his affection on you. The impulse of impartiality. Number three, the impulse of evangelism. Evangelism, look at verse seven. 
When they saw I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. The impulse of evangelism. Hey, we're going to go to the Jews. Paul's going to go to the Gentiles. And that everyone needs to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now some have taken verse 7 and they've twisted the words to bring in this teaching that, that Peter and Paul were preaching two different gospels. That's not what the verse says. When they said, I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised has Peter been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised oh those are two different there's a gospel for uncircumcised people and there's a gospel for circumcised people that's not what it says that phrase entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised simply means the message is being taken to them it doesn't mean it's a different one I don't always do this but the King James does translate it gospel of the circumcised and unfortunately, I studied that word, and I believe that's the wrong translation. They're trying to show Peter and Paul had two different messages. No, 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 listen. We preach one gospel, one faith, one Lord. There's one way to heaven. It's always been that way. There's salvation in no other name, only in Jesus Christ. And it's only by grace through faith. So they're going. The idea that these guys are going to share their gospel with others. We say, wow, that's, that's really great. Those missionaries are so important. And, and a church should, should support missionaries. And God uses missionaries to spread his gospel. Or the pastors or teachers to spread the message. No, listen. It's for every single one of us. All of us should have this fruit all of us should have this impulse of evangelism. The word evangelism is the word, to be evangelical is someone who is spreading the good news. Evangelical, that word is euangelion, which is the Greek word which means good news. It's, it's, I'm a gospel spreader. Okay, but, <laughs> yeah, pastor, that's great. I'm not good at it. And I, listen, what if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer to it? You think we do? <laughs> People ask me all kinds of questions I don't know the answer to. And I'm like, that's a really difficult question. I don't know the answer. Let me pray on it. Let me study it. Yeah, but if, if, if I don't have all the right information, I, I, I'm not going to be effective. And if I go and share the gospel with someone and, and it doesn't produce a, a result, a, a conversion, then I'm a failure. And I don't want you to raise your hand. But my question is, did you become a Christian the very first time you heard the gospel? Or let me ask you it a different way. What if the person who shared the gospel with you decided you were too risky? 
What if he or she, your mom or your dad or your youth pastor or, or a pastor or a friend or a neighbor or a family member, what if they said, I, 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 I'm sorry, I, I, you, might, you might ask me a question, I don't know. Listen, God uses crooked sticks to strike straight blows all the time. He can take your story and your muffed up gospel and he can save people. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, is it, is it Apollos? Is it Paul? Servants from whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. Listen, you don't save anybody. Get over yourself. It doesn't matter if a decision is made or not. Be faithful in opening your mouth and sharing the gospel. Just be faithful. Some people that are in your life may never hear the gospel unless you do it. And your job is not to get a decision, is not to have them come to church and walk an aisle and get baptized and, and take communion. That's not your job. Your job is to simply proclaim the name Jesus Christ. It's an impulse. Lastly, look at verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The last impulse that we talk about today is the impulse of compassion. The impulse of compassion. Paul says that he went to the poor. He said, I'm very eager to do this. Back in Acts chapter 11, there was this prophecy about uh, this famine among Christians, this persecution among Christians. And so in Acts chapter 11, it says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. See, Paul, Saul here, Paul, was very eager to go to people who needed help. And they, decided, they sent Barnabas and, and Paul here with support and aid to those Christians who, are, who are, are suffering. Just last week, our teams went down into Chicago to hand out bags of coats and gloves and food to homeless people. And it's amazing to hear the stories that they share or the names of the people that they talk to. And listen, it's an important thing for a church to realize that there are ways that we can support the poor. And I would say this, that there's a movement, especially a young, among young people, to, to have uh, these great things done in our world today, like to, uh, to, to remove malaria, to eradicate it, or to provide clean water for, for all countries and all children. And listen, those are amazing things. But I think there's more to this. Doesn't it kind of sound like this last verse is kind of tagged on? They, they perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship uh, that, that they would go this way and we would go that way. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. Oh, yeah, by the way, don't, don't forget. I, I think what Paul is saying here is that as you go and preach the gospel, look out for the poor. Not... Go to the poor and see if you can preach the gospel. 
Paul says in Corinthians, I received from you what the Lord gave me, what of first importance. Like, what is the most important thing? Eternity weighs in the balance. And you can go into other countries and you can provide netting and things like that to, to, to uh, keep mosquitoes from getting people. Or you can dig wells and you can provide clean water for children. And, and those are great things. But if those people in that country die without Christ, if those children in that country die without Christ, their soul is still lost. Yeah, be compassionate. Work for social justice, but don't just bring compassion into this life. Be compassionate on sharing. Be compassionate on sharing with them about the life to come. God doesn't just provide us food and comfort for now. He comes and he takes care of the biggest problem that we have. He doesn't just take care of this tiny little dot we call a life. He takes care of our entire eternity. The reason you feel compassion for people is because God feels compassion for their souls. Now, listen, again, it's not your job to save them, but you're spreading the gospel with them. And yes, dig wells, and yes, provide nets, and yes, provide coats and clothes for people who are in need. But first and foremost, there should be compassion about their soul. These are fruits that are produced as a result of being rooted in the gospel. And it actually starts to come out of you. Do you believe in Christ Jesus? Do you believe it is his message? Do you believe in him alone for your salvation? Do you believe that the cross is sufficient you don't have to add anything else onto it. Do you believe that you have freedom in Christ? Or are you being drawn back into slavery? If you said yes to those things, I believe in Christ, and I believe the cross is sufficient, and I, have, I believe I have freedom in Christ, then do you see these impulses starting to show discipleship and impartiality and evangelism and compassion? And my question this morning is, if they're not there, why aren't they there? Why is there no fruit being produced? Because what are you rooted in? Gospel roots produce gospel fruits. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I... Lord, I am inadequate to share the message because God I know that I fail in this God I pray that you would help me help me to understand what the gospel is help me to understand what your word says that you have given us everything for life and godliness that now we just live we have the freedom to live and in doing so we see these different things start to show up in our lives like discipleship or compassion or evangelism God help us to not 
have the fear of man. Help us to just live in the light of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for your message of truth. The message that says, there's nothing I can do, but it's only what you did. God, thank you for this, this, this story here in Galatians about Paul being confirmed of what he was preaching. And the disciples confirming their message as well. And that, that what a beautiful connection and unity. God, help us as a church who are united together here, but have been called to different jobs in different places and different locations here in Grays Lake and surrounding areas. And Lord, you've given us each the same message to share. Help us to share that message faithfully. I pray that you will continue to work in us as we continue to dig our roots deeper into what we know of as the gospel, what we know of as grace. And Lord, I pray that it would continue to produce things within our lives. We love you. And we know it's because you first loved us. It is in your precious name that we pray. Amen.